On Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the show that reveals some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Enmeshed family members are fused together by unhealthy emotions instead of the strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family. Boundaries are blurred and unhealthy relationship patterns are formed. Hello and welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm Pam. And today we're talking about the murder of Judy Fraser in St. Catharines, Ontario, on January 16th, 2014. Her murderer was her husband, George. While the story of a husband murdering his wife is all too familiar, what sets the Fraser case apart is George's lengthy jailhouse blog called Abandoned and Betrayed. Yeah, what's crazy about George is that after the murder, after the trial, and after his conviction, in prison he writes this insanely long account of his whole life with Judy, What led up to him killing her? I mean, everything. And without taking any accountability. Exactly. He uses really passive language, blames everyone else around him, and won't take any responsibility at all. Which is totally in line with other behaviors and actions. I actually had the opportunity to speak with someone with firsthand knowledge of the case. They would like to stay anonymous, which I will respect, and we'll get into what they have to add to the discussion in terms of George's personality and the lead-up to this horrible murder. But for now, let's start from the beginning. Judy and George Fraser were married for 47 years before George murdered her in front of her apartment on January 16, 2014. She had recently moved out following years of his psychological abuse, isolation, and terror. While much of what we know about the case comes from George's own recollection, we also have some input from George and Judy's oldest daughter, Kim. And all of these sources will be included in today's show notes. Right. So we know from Kim that her father, George, had a temper and controlled his family's life with an iron fist. But we're jumping ahead just a tiny bit here, and we'll come back around to Kim's story soon. So like I said, George and Judy had been married for 47 years. George writes in his blog that both of them were raised in a time when men were supposed to be controlling. I suppose this explains his own behavior and why Judy stayed for as long as she did. Judy had a very impoverished background, which he doesn't elaborate on much, and George complains that he never felt loved enough as a child. He also says his stepfather regularly physically abused him through his childhood. But what George spends most of his blog complaining about is his sex life with Judy. He labels her as asexual because she never initiated sex and rarely showed physical signs of affection. George writes at length about how miserable their sex life was, how miserable it made him, and how nothing seemed to work with Judy. It's like he's trying to gain sympathy for pestering his wife for sex. Exactly. He even goes into detail for a while about how the Bible commands couples to give of themselves to each other and other Bible verses about sex and marriage. And that's something my anonymous source talked with me about too, that Judy was a real, devout Christian, devoted to her church, 
whereas George was a cultural Christian, and from the looks of it, he mostly manipulated religion to suit his narcissism. George and Judy ended up having two daughters, Kim and Tracy. From what we can tell, Tracy has largely stayed silent on the case, but we know a lot about the inner workings of George because of Kim. And obviously from George, however much that can be trusted. Yeah. And the way Kim talks about their upbringing is just heartbreaking. She mentions his horrible temper and how the whole household would have to walk on eggshells to make sure not to set him off. He'd call them names and yell at them all the time. In one story, Kim recalled Judy buying some luggage for an upcoming trip to Florida. George freaked out and accused her of cheating on him and made her return the luggage. On top of that, he made her call up 10 different people and tell them all about the stupid things she did. Oh, hell no. That's an incredible amount of control. And on top of that, he recorded her phone calls and monitored her email. Kim writes that he slowly started isolating Judy from friends and family over the years. Secretly, Judy was in counseling for years to deal with George, and eventually she convinced him that family counseling could be good for the both of them. This is when Kim was 15. So they all go to family counseling, which I don't think George knew that Judy had been seeing a counselor previous to this. And not long into the session, he realizes that the therapist is focusing on him and not in a positive way. He storms out and then, get this, he goes home and shuts off everything. The heat, the water, even disconnecting the car battery. This punishment lasted a week. But it wasn't enough for George to be a bully to his family. According to Kim and my unnamed source, George knew how to manipulate the police and legal system to harass the neighbors. He was constantly bringing lawsuits or calling the police over little things like property lines, birdhouses, fence posts, anything he thought was out of place. Allegedly, he pursued action against 22 different neighbors, calling the police hundreds of times about any little issue, and of course, Judy and the girls were supposed to just quietly agree with him. My source tells me people in the neighborhood were regularly moving away because of him, and they'd sell their houses without a sign out front so he wouldn't know. The way I understand it, he'd even gotten fired from General Motors twice, but just kept showing up for his job and even brought a couple of lawsuits against GM. He was an intelligent man, aside from the crazy. This is where it really becomes clear the terror George brought to everyone around him. Kim says in her article, quote, Possibly one lesson to be learned from our situation is that there is a good chance that if someone is that aggressive to people and businesses in their community, then they are most likely that aggressive in their home life, end quote. And if you've watched someone weaponize the police and the court system for years without getting caught, then it must seem impossible to do anything to him, like leave. And so that's why Kim says Judy stayed with George for so long. In the meantime, Kim gets married and has two children, and then Tracy becomes a single mother to two daughters. Throughout his blog, George calls Tracy his best friend, or just BF, and labels Kim as dysfunctional and bitter, for reasons we'll get to after the break. Stick around, we've got a lot more to cover. Are you planning an event with audio and visual needs but are not sure where to start? Waves Entertainment can help. Waves Entertainment is your premier full-service management company with high-quality custom solutions for any size event. 
Whether you are planning a large festival or concert, a corporate meeting or wedding, Waves Entertainment will power your event to excellence. Our team of industry professionals work closely with your vision to ensure your audience hears every word, sees every detail, and remembers the experience. Our goal is to ensure your event is customized to fit your needs and provide professional-grade equipment to amplify your message. From live stage production and talent booking to vendor coordination, event staffing, and more, Waves Entertainment is your one-stop shop for the perfect event. Visit our website, wavesentertainment.com, or give us a call at 704-662-2435. That's 704-662-2435. Waves Entertainment, powering your event to excellence. Before we get back in, what do you think? I think George is a psychopath who got a thrill from any and all conflict. He was described as having a Hannibal Lecter look when he got pissed, which was seemingly often. We don't know the details of if he controlled how she dressed or looked. I do know he controlled who came to the house and her comings and goings. In the end, it's the classic case of if I can't have you, nobody can have you. It's funny how sometimes the people you take a bullet for are the ones behind the trigger. Yes, and after over 40 years of abuse, isolation, and being pressured into sexual intimacy she didn't want, Judy finally decided to leave George with Kim's help. By this time, Judy is 73 and tells Kim that she wants to spend her remaining years living life on her own terms. They wait until George is away for a couple of weeks to tend to a cabin they owned. This cabin is George's favorite place, right? That's right. George thinks of it as a sanctuary and a special place for him to visit. That's going to be important later. So they wait for him to be out of town and start making their moves. They got a lawyer for Judy, gathered up financial documents, and as much as they could pack in her car, and got out of the house. Judy wrote what both Kim and George refer to as the Dear George letter, which detailed to George all the reasons she was divorcing him, leaving the letter for him to find as she went out of town to stay with some family members. According to Kim, the Dear George letter spelled out sexual and physical abuse against Judy that Kim had not previously known about. These family members that she went to stay with also had no idea of the abuse, and Kim puts it so well when she wrote, quote, Violence does thrive in silence, and she was threatened that her life was in danger if she told anyone, end quote. George returned home to find the Dear George letter and notice of their legal separation. In his blog, every time George refers to the separation, he uses quotes around it as though it isn't a real thing, which is going back to his self-serving interpretation of biblical marriage and what a relationship between husband and wife should be. Thankfully, Kim and Judy were a couple of steps ahead of George for the six weeks she was hiding away with family. George would call Judy incessantly and harass her with multiple daily emails, so Judy took out a no-contact order. Friends would drive Judy around in their cars so her car would not be recognized. Together, Kim and Judy sought out legal services to combat George's vast knowledge of the courts, and for a while, it worked. Judy felt safe and was able to move into her own apartment at the beginning of December in 2013. According to Kim, she spoke with her mother just a few days before her murder. 
Judy was adjusting well to life on her own, feeling at peace with her decision and happy that she could do as she wanted, when she wanted, and that, quote, no man was ever going to touch her, end quote. This whole time, George is trying to figure out how to get Judy back. He reaches out to her through his lawyer, begging for reconciliation, and that entire letter can be found on his blog. Really, the only reason this letter is important to our conversation here is it completely spells out George's disdain for Kim and how he blames her for the separation. George insists that Kim's supposed disrespect and so-called dysfunction caused Judy to leave him. Taking absolutely no responsibility. Exactly. He also admits that he was still checking Judy's email all through the separation. Remember how he had access to it? He uses emails that Kim sent to Judy to continue blaming Kim for the breakup. And here's where everything starts going off the rails. See, Judy had all the assets in her name from the beginning, including that cabin George loved oh so much. So on January 16th, 2014, he opens an email from Judy's lawyer that tells him he no longer has access to the cabin. George refers to the moment he read that as his spiritual death. Wait, I want to point out how on his blog, leading up to this, he was putting in little countdowns like, in just four and a half months, in just three and a half months, so on and so forth. Judy would be murdered by my hand. And here he is, on the day of her murder, saying he was experiencing spiritual death over the loss of his cabin, and that, quote, Judy would be murdered by my hand, end quote. Passive language, as though it just sort of happened, not that he did it. George claims he planned to kill himself upon realizing his cabin was going to be taken away. He goes into this long description about how he's going to use a knife, but none of the knives he owns are suitable, so he goes to buy some knives. And he uses a coupon at Canadian Tire. Thrifty George, nice. Real thrifty George, good job. Why use a coupon if you're going to kill yourself? He ends up buying a set of two knives, a 7-inch and 5-inch, because they're cheaper, of course, and he writes that one knife went into his glove compartment, the other went into his jacket pocket. I'm not going to detail everything that happens next, because George writes it out in maybes and could-haves and probablys, as though his memory is fuzzy on what happened leading up to killing his soon-to-be ex-wife. But one thing he says is that he realized that he didn't have to kill himself over this cabin. He could try to talk to Judy. The tragedy of this moment boils down to one little oversight by the court. Her new address was printed on the separation documents. George gains the upper hand again. He went to speak with Judy about the cabin, cornering her in the parking lot of her apartment complex. I just want to read to you what he had to say about this moment. Quote, I didn't wake up on the morning of January 16th, 2014, planning to kill anyone, especially someone who I loved and shared a family with for 47 years. Judy had been my best friend for 50 years. Likewise, Judy didn't wake up that morning planning to tell me, fuck you, unquote. Is he really trying to say that he killed her because she said, fuck you, I own the cabin? That's definitely the way he wrote it, yeah. He lays out all these reasons why the fuck you is such a big deal, as though he's trying to justify stabbing her to death with the knife he just bought. So, yes, that evening he stabbed her in the parking lot and fled to Kim's house. 
Kim's husband, Troy, escorted the screaming, rambling George off their property before realizing that George had likely killed Judy. Right. A news article said that George pulled up yelling about how this was all Kim's fault and how Kim and Judy had conspired together to make him do it. And then Troy was like, we need to call 911. I think he killed your mom. George writes, Judy's murder was a heinous crime that even today I can't imagine committing because killing anything was never my values. Again, with that distancing language and claiming that he blacked out or snapped, not remembering much of anything up until he was at Kim's house. The weird thing here is that he storms into Kim's house, Judy's blood on his clothes, and uses their phone to call 911. This is from his blog. He says that he then sat on the front porch waiting for 911 and pulled out his cell phone to call Tracy, the second daughter. Why did he have to go to Kim's house in the first place? I know adrenaline can make you do strange things, but he had a cell phone on him the entire time. I don't want to give this guy any credit, but at least he called the cops on himself. Yeah, but he also dragged his kids into it immediately. You're right. And he argues in his blog that he never yelled at Kim or anything like that. But based on past actions and how he can't take responsibility for anything, it seems more likely than not that he threw some jabs her way. George was arrested and pled guilty to Judy's murder and sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 18 years. He stood stoic during the entire trial with his hair slicked back in his black three-piece suit and used big fancy words like he owned the place. The Crown attorney stated that, quote, This crime was one of the worst acts of domestic violence this community has seen in years, end quote. Kim writes that she was concerned George would be able to manipulate the court with the plea of not criminally responsible. However, the evidence was just too overwhelming. She also says that while her father pled guilty, he has refused to take responsibility for Judy's death. We see this everywhere on his blog, including when he thanks the prison chaplain for his support, because otherwise George, quote, would never have survived my incarceration after Judy's murder, end quote. Because of George's entitlement and rage issues, a family is left without their loving mother and grandmother, Judy Fraser, just as she was reclaiming her life. Anything to add? George will be eligible for parole in 2033. In my opinion, Canada has a lenient justice system. A maximum life sentence is 25 years, no matter what crime has been committed. Then the criminal will be eligible for parole. If George is paroled, Kim has stated, quote, he wants to kill me next time, and she's not the only one hanging in fear. That's scary stuff. I wanted to point out the women's shelter that helped Judy so much as she tried to escape, and Kim continues to raise awareness for domestic violence victims through Jillian's Place in St. Catharines, Ontario. That's Jillian with the G, and we'll link their information in the show notes. For American listeners, if you or someone you love is experiencing abuse, visit thehotline.org. If you're worried about security, you can quickly exit out of the page by tapping escape on your keyboard twice. Thank you for listening. All of our sources are in today's show notes, as well as those important resources. You can find us at enmeshed underscore true crime podcast on Instagram or enmeshed true crime podcast on Facebook and let us know what you think. 
You can also get a behind-the-scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships. Enmeshed is an Oh No production.